Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, May 14th. I'm Ashley Norwood, in for Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show... The House was was pretty firm in wanting to make sure that we took care of small businesses immediately. The state legislature continues its work to appropriate CARES Act funds. Then, as the November general election looms, we look at the safeguards some voting rights advocates are fighting for. Then, in our book club, a new book that recounts the fatal shootings by law enforcement on the Jackson State campus 50 years ago. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Small businesses hurt by the coronavirus pandemic may now be eligible for using federal relief money based on grant programs created by the Mississippi legislature. One program would use $60 million for grants of $2,000 to those forced to close by government order. The other would use $240 million, and businesses could apply for grants of $1,500 to $25,000. Representative Robert Johnson, a Democrat from Natchez, explains the program with our Desiree Frazier. There are two different tracks. The first track would be direct payments that you don't have to apply for. All you have to do is show that you you are a business owner, that you paid uh, taxes in the last two to three years. Uh, you either pay taxes in 18, 19, or, or paying them in 20. One of those three, you qualify. And and that's primarily to establish that it, that you're a licensed barber, cosmetologist, whoever may be uh, a business person. That is only required to establish that we're not sending checks to people who are licensed, maybe dead or not practicing anymore. But that'll be a direct payment because you were shut down, not because you did it voluntarily or not because nobody came you you shut down because the law said you couldn't open so we we writing checks to them they don't there there'll be minimum requirements to receive that if you meet those minimum requirements you're going to get a direct payment with without a, a, a application process and then there will be a a grant application that you'll fill out a large sum that you'll be eligible for if you meet certain requirements They'll, you'll have to apply for that that'll that comes later and that's a 240 million dollar uh, pot of money. How do you feel about this? Uh, how far you've gotten with this? Well, we, we, we spent the last two days in negotiation. I've been locked in a room. And, and, and I can tell you that we've come a long way from where uh, we started, where people wanted to be. Uh, so uh, we, the, the House was, was per, pretty firm in wanting to make sure that we took care of small businesses immediately. 
that was our position that the the most important thing we can do is is to get something out to small businesses and that was a very important to me as a democratic as a democrat and as an african american because in in small counties like I'm from and along the river and in places we don't have a lot of manufacturing and big jobs but we have a lot of people who are in business for them small businesses barbers and daycare we had to add child care centers in there as well they they were not under the executive order, but they met the COVID requirement that they some of them couldn't do business or didn't or did substantially less business because they were complying with COVID uh, distancing res, uh, recommendation and other things that were, were safety issues. So that's uh, that's where we were. So that we I I, am, I I do feel like we came and I am satisfied. Robert Johnson is a Democrat from Natchez. Governor Tate Reeves must agree to the programs for them to take effect. The Republican has said he wants to help businesses. The Senate is considering plans from leaders in the education community over how to address distance learning shortfalls. During a Senate Education Committee meeting yesterday, State Superintendent of Education Dr. Kerry Wright presented the plan for K-12 education as an opportunity to address the disparity in educational technology across the state. We have um, what I believe is a historic opportunity as a state to bridge this digital divide that exists in, among children pre-K through grade 12. You know, this health crisis has caused statewide closures, and they have certainly amplified the inequities that our students have. Mississippi is not alone. This is a national issue. This is not just a state issue. Children with no access to computers or tablets at home have been put at a greater disadvantage, obviously. We know, based on an AP article from April of 2020, the percentage of Mississippi households that do not have a computer device ranges from 44% in Greenwood to 8% in Oxford. There's also a huge disparity amongst those districts. Statewide, based on an article from the University of Mississippi, May of 2020, statewide, 32% of households do not have broadband. We have a moral imperative, and I want to say that again. I believe we have a moral imperative to ensure that every child in Mississippi has an equal opportunity to learn whether they are at home or whether they are at school. Our plan, the Mississippi Succeeds plan, has been developed to address this issue and bring access to the Internet and high-quality instructional materials, another key piece that I'm going to talk about in just a second to all children. We have been working with the national experts to develop this plan, and we have also sought um, support from the Mississippi Alliance of Nonprofits and Philanthropy, who are in full support of this plan as well. Dr. Wright says it'll cost $250 million the first year and $100 million over the next two years to implement the plan. College Board Commissioner Alfred Rankins echoes many of those concerns. He says he has seen students in business parking lots trying to connect to Wi-Fi. The major challenges we saw were around the lack of technology and internet access uh, across our campuses. In many cases, students were sharing a computer with other family members who were working from home or siblings who were doing their schoolwork online. And many students were trying to complete their their coursework on cell phones because they didn't have computers. Many of our students, uh, particularly our resident students, were living in homes with no internet connectivity at all or in geographical regions without reliable internet access. 
And I'll say one statement to really bring home a common theme and a common problem that you've heard uh, throughout the afternoon. Uh, the most common response we got from the universities when they surveyed their students, we had many students that were driving to McDonald's and other fast food restaurants sitting in the parking lot because they couldn't go inside and doing their coursework. And I can tell you, I wit witnessed this twice at Walmart while I pulled up beside a car that had students sitting in the car. They had their textbooks on the dashboard and trying to complete their coursework online. We have a serious issue that we're hopeful that uh, your leadership will help us address. Commissioner Rankins is asking for $86 million to upgrade technology and train faculty and students. The Senate resumes committee meetings today. Coming up as the November general election looms, we look at the safeguards some voting rights advocates are fighting for. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Ashley Norwood. With six months left until Election Day, civil rights groups are pursuing legal measures they believe will prove critical to Americans' efforts to access the ballot in 2020. Lawyers from the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund say they are using litigation methods at the state and federal levels to address concerns over voter protection and ballot access during the November election. Ezra Rosenberg is the co-director of the Voting Rights Project, Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. He tells our Karen Brown the litigation is providing a critical tool to expanding voting access amid the pandemic. Uh, a letter was drafted uh, by uh, all of the groups. I think it went out on the Southern Poverty Law Center's letterhead, but all of the groups signed on to it, uh, to the Secretary of State, asking the Secretary of State to uh, enact and to uh, put into into to implement certain things that would make it easier for people to vote during a pandemic, uh, and they included uh, that the absentee ballot statute be construed so that every eligible voter can vote by absentee ballot. That um, absentee ballot applications were mailed to all voters, to all eligible voters. That an online voter registration system be implemented that uh, there be elimination of the notarization requirement. Uh, Mississippi has a, a really onerous, uh, unique, dual notarization requirement where it, it's required that both the absentee ballot application and the ballot itself be notarized in order to, 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 for the vote to count. Um, and, and that um, absentee ballot uh, be, be available until Election Day and that they will be counted if postmarked by election day. Um, and, and there were a few other things, but these were these were the major things. We at the Lawyers Committee, on behalf of uh, Mississippi NAACP, had filed a suit before the pandemic challenging this dual notarization process, 
specifically in the context of runoff elections because there's very little time between the first election and the runoff election and to require someone to have go to a notary twice and in between getting the absentee ballot application going to notary sending the absentee ballot application getting the ballot back going to notary again it, it's, it really violates the right to vote. All right, let me jump in here because sure. um, from what you mentioned, it would require changing uh, the law or the or the policy about absentee voting because now not everyone can vote absentee. There that's are correct. restrictions. Okay, as you just mentioned, the uh, affidavit that's required or the notarization that's required and other things that would need to be changed. We're a little less than six months away from the November general election. Is this doable in that period of time? It's absolutely doable. And first of all, not all of it has to be changed by law. In, in the, the, the governor has limited emergency powers that we believe could support some of the changes, and you could delegate uh, the implementation to the Secretary of State. And uh, the legislature is convening, I believe, uh, Monday the 18th, and there are a couple of bills that are pending, at least one, uh, that I've seen does, in fact, uh, change the date by which absentee ballots will be accepted if postmarked on Election Day and allow them to be counted if received within, I believe, five days of Election Day. So there are things that can happen. And certainly, uh, as other states have been doing, they can change the eligibility requirements uh, because otherwise people are going to have to choose between their health and exercise of the right to vote. It would appear that the manner of voting, the options available for voting, is a very partisan issue and that um, Republicans might favor uh, in-person voting over mail-in voting or absentee voting for everyone. Mississippi is a Republican-controlled state. What What are the chances that that there might be changes, significant changes? Well, frankly, we don't see it as a partisan issue. We see it as simply as, as really the foundation of democracy. And we're not saying that the only way people should vote is by mail. We actually think that there should be as many options as possible, including increased ability of people to vote early in person um, and, and including expanding the opportunity to, to vote by mail. We think that it's in the interest of every political party to have every eligible voter vote. And that's really what, what, what we're fighting for. We all saw the election in Wisconsin recently and how tough it was for people to show up to vote, even though they had to do that. And there were a lot of polling places that had been closed. Is there a lesson to be learned there? Sure. I mean, that's a good example where people should not be forced to choose between health and the right to vote. You had people lined up uh, for blocks and blocks and blocks in a, in a situation where the reports have, I think, I forgot the exact figure, but it was at least it was in the dozens of people whose um, illness from the coronavirus can be traced to Election Day. And that should not happen. And it, if, if the governments around the country do implement the, the sorts of uh, improvements that we are, we, are, we are advocating. And by the way, when you said before that it's state by state, that's true. But each state has to comply with the United States Constitution, and the United States Constitution mandates that 
the right to vote cannot be uh, taken away without due process and that governments cannot do things uh, that put an undue burden on the right to vote. If they have restrictions that be narrowly tailored to the interests of the government and uh, they're, 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 the voters should be given every opportunity to exercise their right to vote. Any final thoughts for our listeners? I, I think the important thing is that the, there has to be a balance struck between protecting people's health and protecting the right to vote. And this is particularly true because for the elderly, for minority citizens, for the poor, for students, those are the groups who are particularly burdened by the restrictions on the right to vote, by the uh, obstacles that are being placed to voting uh, by mail, to the cutbacks in early voting, which if you had early voting, you would spread out and thin out the number of voters per day which would also uh, help uh, protect people's health yet allow them to vote. So uh, what we're saying is that people should not be forced to choose between health and voting, and there are lots of ways to, to, to accomplish it to allow people to vote and maintain, their, and maintain protections uh, against uh, the coronavirus. Ezra Rosenberg is the co-director of Voting Rights Project, Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Ezra, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, it was my pleasure, Karen. Thank you. Coming up in our book club, a new book that recounts the fatal shootings by law enforcement on the Jackson State campus 50 years ago. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you ever miss one of our locally produced shows or want to simply hear it again, you can find what you need at mpbonline.org or download our podcast app to your smartphone. MPB programming is on your schedule at mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Ashley Norwood. Fifty years ago today, Jackson police and highway patrol officers marched onto the Jackson State College campus and opened fire on unarmed students. Two were killed. Countless were injured. Historian Nancy K. Bristow recounts the tragedy in her new book, Steeped in the Blood of Racism. She talks with MPB's Karen Brown. There had been some unrest on the campus on the night of the 13th. White motors driving from downtown Jackson to the western suburbs traditionally simply abused the students at Jackson State College. They would yell racial epithets. They would speed through campus, realizing, of course, that this was a major thoroughfare that ran right through the middle of a college campus. And that had been the site of problems between motorists and students for several years running. On the night of May 13th, um, there's another incident of that sort, or we assume that's what started the unrest. And students took to the street and sort of, you know, were bothering cars, so they shut off the street. There was a little bit of additional problems, but in the midst of May 1970, this was a minor event. Once the street was closed that night, the unrest really dissipated. The police left eventually and had not entered the campus, and there were no further problems. So the morning of May 14th dawns with people hopeful that this will just be another day on campus. And in fact, things do go forward on campus as a normal day. The president actually asked that the city close Lynch Street through campus that night, worrying that there could be further 
problems. The city refused because it wanted commuters to be able to travel. And so again, there are some rocks thrown at cars, and again, the police shut down Lynch Street. Some students near Stewart Hall, or perhaps some local youth, drive a dump truck onto Lynch Street in front of Stewart Hall and light at a fire. And this brings a fire truck to campus, and that also brings the Mississippi Highway and Safety Patrol, as well as the Jackson Police, to campus. They have no problems dousing the fire, and the fire truck leaves campus. The National Guard is on the edge of campus and is to take over. Rather than leaving the campus, the Highway Patrol and the Jackson Police march up Lynch Street through the middle of campus and stop in front of Alexander Hall, a women's dormitory. There is no reason for them to stop there. It is against their orders, which were that they were to leave the campus when the National Guard arrived. They turn and they face the students. They're heavily, heavily armed, and a bottle crashes on the pavement, and they open fire. The students may have been throwing racial epithets, but the police and the highway patrol were in no way endangered. The students were behind a chain-link fence. They had not been involved in the earlier unrest. They had simply been hanging out in front of the dormitory before law enforcement arrived. But when that bottle broke, they opened fire, and they fired for 28 seconds. How many students were there? The police will try to claim that there were hundreds Others suggest that it was something more like maybe 30 to 50 kids hanging out out front, you know, talking to the women inside the dormitory. Women had a curfew at 11.30, so male students would hang out outside and talk through the windows with their female friends that lived in the dorm. But they fire for 28 seconds, and they fire not only directly into the students who are separated from them only by a short distance, but also spray the building itself with shot and with bullets and just rake up and down the entire front of the west wing of the dormitory. How many students were killed? Two students, one a local high schooler, James Earl Green, and one a college student at Jackson State, Philip Gibbs. Twelve young people are injured by shot or bullets or by spraying glass. And it's possible that those numbers are inaccurate. Not every student may have chosen to seek medical aid. What did police and highway patrol say motivated them to open fire? Besides a glass bottle, why would they turn and fire into a dormitory? They will fabricate a story about a sniper. They will maintain that they had been fired upon. Others will suggest that they feared for their lives. There is no evidence that there was a sniper. This is a fabricated story. It's possible that some may have believed that they were in danger, But even if that were the case, it is counter to all protocol to simply open fire on innocent, unarmed people. In fact, there are other rules that one is to follow, and both the Highway Patrol and the police had rules in place that told them what they should do if there had been a sniper. But again, I cannot emphasize strongly enough, there was no sniper. They opened fire because these were white law enforcement officers and these were African-American students. You have to look directly at the face of white supremacy and understand that these were lives that were simply undervalued. They knew that they could open fire, that there would not be repercussions. This was nothing other than a racial shooting. And it's important to note as well that many on campus even today believe that this was a planned shooting. In the weeks and months that follow, there will be several investigations one by the city, one by the President's Commission on Campus Unrest. There will be two grand juries, and ultimately there will also be a civil suit. Through the the actual criminal justice system, the students will find no justice at all. 
None at all. They will never even receive an apology from the city or state of Mississippi. And you can add one more layer to that tragedy, which is that much of the nation simply forgets about what happened to the young people at Jackson State College. The book is called Steeped in the Blood of Racism, Black Power, Law and Order, and the 1970s Shootings at Jackson State College. We've been speaking with its author, Nancy K. Bristow. Thank you so much, Nancy. Thank you. This evening at 7.30, the Margaret Walker Center will host a virtual town hall. Panelists include the widow of one of the slain students, a student who was shot on campus, and an eyewitness to the shootings. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.